G'day, and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark, and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start, but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away, or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Good evening, gents. How are you all this evening? Good, mate. I'm well, mate. Good. That's good. Um, and I'm well too. I'm just looking at something. I, I am. You have my undivided, undivided attention. I'm just looking at something. Keep going. <laughs> well, we'll Trend, start with mate. you. Yeah, he's just he's looking at photos of himself, reading his latest article. Just I'm so good. And... <laughs> oh, but more importantly, have you tried my goat curry recipe yet? No, no. But I had. We made, we did, um, my lovely wife did, uh, we did pulled pork for the first time. So I'm going to, tr- we're going to try and expand that into. Um... It wasn't my recipe in that magazine. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I wonder who's uh, read that recipe and made it because it's delicious. What do you mean it wasn't recipe. your recipe? It was your recipe. You gave it to me. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, but, you know, the pulled pork wasn't my recipe. Yeah. No, 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 no. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Focus. Here, I'm right here. Yeah, no, what we're saying is that we did pulled pork last weekend and I'm I wanna do something pulled goat or pulled venison. Um yeah, I wanna try that. Pulled pulled venison doesn't work the best unless you've got a shoulder or something, it's too dry. You want something with some fat in it. So I highly recommend the goat curry if you've got some goat. Mm. There you go. Mm. Yeah. You want I have um, an oversupply of lamb running around in the paddocks. They just keep popping out these things, I tell you. It's a bit small, aren't they, at the moment? No, that one is. They're easy to pull apart. They're little. <laughs> Not much pulling in them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was my that was my week. We've had lots of lambs, and we had a um an unfortunate event last night, which delayed our podcast recording because <laughs> one of my one of my ewes didn't make it, um, but the lamb did, and now it's running around. It thinks it's a dog. Um, I saw the, the picture with with the dog. It looks awesome. He's out with the dog. I put it outside. My wife drags it back inside, cuddles it, puts it somewhere. It ends up on a cushion. I put it outside. It comes back inside. I can't. You're not going to be able to eat that one. You know that. I will. My yeah, family gonna... Don't make friends with food. Don't make friends with your food. <laughs> make simple food. rule. Yeah. Anyway, it did get a name. So it's, um... <laughs> that's it's a bit. Once it's got a name, that's it. You can't eat it. Yeah, definitely can't eat it. Harder. What if it's Unless vanilla? you call it something like curry. <laughs> then you go, it's curry. Where's the curry? Right. In the curry. Anyway, that was my my uh, amazing week. So um, the good thing, well, the good thing. There's two good things about this. If you're interested in my sheep farming enterprise, um, it was the matriarch of the of the uh, of the group, and she's a real bitch. Was like, a real she's bitch. the one that breaks through the fence and takes the rest of them with her. She's the defiant one. She's the pain in the ass. If I had to wish it on any of them, which I wouldn't, it'd be her. So anyway, she's now hanging in the fridge just through there and um, she'll make up some curries, vindaloos, various other things. So anyway, it's good. 
How's your week been, Mark? Exciting uh, as the ends? Not as uh, well, yeah. Not as domestic as in domestic livestock as ends, but um, interesting in itself. Uh, so um, a couple of weeks ago, I got invited to uh, a rugby rifles. Mm. event here in Brisbane and um, I'm talking to the guys uh, that is Mark Newton from um, the uh, managing director of rugby um, the parent company in England uh, next week via zoom we're having a chat about that so that's been quite interesting and that was quite an interesting event got this I've obviously got to see some really really cool rifles yeah. um, but also talk to some really you know interesting people like you know guys who um Unassuming guys who are buying, you know, fifty thousand dollar plus rifles to go to Zim to shoot bull elephants and stuff like oh. that. And I was talking different, to this one guy, and he, was, he was just kind of going, "Yeah, I think I'll get that one. I really like that one." And I said, "It's kind of like buying a D Max," and he said, "Yeah, it's pretty much that." And I said, "Oh, why not?" You know. And he went and he got fitted up, and then and it was really, really quite interesting. And he says, "Yep, I'm going to buy this cow. I'm going to go this this place with it, and so on." And yeah, it was really quite, uh, you know, these guys, as I said, very unassuming, traveling the world, big game mm-hmm. hunting, whole lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Those 21, 28 day safaris too, the big long stuff. So I'm talking to them for uh, for a story I'm doing for SSAA later on in the year. We could do 28 days in the territory. We could do 28. I could do 28 days in the Pilliga. <laughs> I could. Oh, 28. I could. Yeah. Sure. Ah, yeah. Sure. Easy. Territory, maybe. Yeah, maybe Easy. not the Pilliga. I could do 28 days in the Pilliga. Territory. Pilliga West. Imagine how many ice runs you'd have to do. Pilliga West. Oh, God. East. In the middle, maybe go up a little forest around the outside. Like, easy. <laughs> well, I'll go with Ian to the territory for 28 days. Oh, um, yeah. Mark, you can go to the pillar Sure. <laughs> I know which one is going to be easier going to the shop than you go. Yeah. We shot yeah, enough food time to sustain ourselves. Just got to take. As long as you got, as long as you got ice and good. Yeah, good. You're well, good. that's it. I mean, let's think about sustainability. Buffalo <laughs> We'll get you a couple of days. <laughs> and, you know, we, uh, because we flew up, we didn't have all of our camping gear. No. Um, we could have done quite a lot with uh, a solar panel and a fridge. Mm. Um, there was, yeah. There's, there's well, a If you had a vehicle as a base and you set it up as a base vehicle, so, you know, they had a couple of, couple of um, angles or whatever it is, fridges on it, big solar panels. Yeah. I, um, we we talked about this, so we talked yeah, about dual, a dual camper trailer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dual, if yep. you had, if you if you got yourself a little bit more organised, you could easily stay in the scrub for fourteen days, mm. and you would just you'd be able to take it. Because as, you know, as as we as we all discovered, it's just the 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 effect that heat has on refrigeration, and so mm. we would just run literally run out of refrigeration space because we're running this. Those little fridges would oh, work hard. Oh yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, but the thing is, what you yeah. would do is you would have, you would set one up as a freezer, and one as a fridge, mm. and the freezer would you know would do keep your ice, and if when you got meat, you'd slab it, put it in there, and the fridge one you'd run like a normal fridge. I mean, my mates yeah. like Graham's got mm-hmm. eighty one, it's eighty liter ones. They're massive. I think. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. I've got an. I've, I've got an eighty. Buffalo recently. 
You ain't going to get my <laughs> shot yeah, of buffalo. I mean, uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, bingo. be honest. If if you want to bring home a whole buffalo, you need to get one of those trailers that has the refrigeration box with the big uh, with the big well, petrol funny. generator on it. It's like a running twenty four hours a day. A guy I know, um, Marty, if he's listening, um, I think he's picked up three or four of these uh, refrigerator box that are fully self sustainable. Hmm. Uh, mm. All solar driven, the whole deal on a trailer, hire type unit. Mm. Might be worth driving up, right? Well, you you, for twenty eight days, you, you, you could you, drive. What you yeah. could do is, you know, you, you've got your mate Trevor. You could say, look, we'll meet you on, we'll meet you on the highway. You know, when you're coming through, you go out and go, mate. Can you? Well, Trevor can the trucky. Yeah, can you stay? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Doesn't. doesn't... Doesn't drive, doesn't drive well. your mate. He's got a desk job and he sells. Oh trackers. wow, that's that's cool. That idea. I'm sure Actually, he's got friends. Yeah. Speaking of territory and driving to the territory, I actually one of my customers. I didn't realise it. He's actually from Catherine, and we stopped in Catherine. Oh. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, good feed at the uh, at the RSL there actually after mm-hmm. the week in the scrub. But um, yeah, I got talking to him. He actually he actually drove up for his mother's 80th birthday recently. And I said, oh, it's not that. It's only like thirty hours. And he goes, nah, it takes a lot longer than that. Mm. Um, it's it's a long way. He said they Three went days. up in like a little. Um, where did he go up in like a little Hyundai Santa Fe or something like that? He had a service before he left, and he got back, and the service like because <laughs> he has to get it resurfaced. Yeah. Um, but he went up for three weeks. Um, he said otherwise they would just they would they would fly up. It's it's too far to go. Um, well, it, it's a three day drive, really. Mm. So you're losing a week of travel, basically. You yes. think about it. It's um, um, it's three thousand k's. So, mm-hmm. how far is it to? Um, just for some perspective, right, Victoria, uh, from where I am, is thirteen hundred k's. Yeah. How much should I say? I was going to say, say fifteen. I was going to say fifteen hundred. So it's just over twice the distance. So for us to get to Bright, the best way we like the fastest we can, we leave home at lunchtime, Toowoomba, and we roll into um, Beechworth, which is near Bright, but we have to stop at Beechworth because we've got a good bakery, so a mean pie. So we stop, and we, that's usually about three a.m. We stop there, a couple of hours sleep under the campers, and then five a.m. to the bakery, and then Bright's half an hour down the road. Mm. Um, mm. So that's that's half a day overnight. It's it's three days non-stop, isn't it? Yeah, well, basically, mm. you drive to from here to Longreach, or thereabouts. Then you Longreach to inner the territory. So was that Camel Wheel there? Oh, that's Camel Wheel. And then from there to where you're going in the territory. So you 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 drive into your camp on the third day. Mm. So you got two nights sleeping on on you know on the on the road. Right. All we've got to do you, is you think about it, 30 hours. So if you land on the way up. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like stop 12 pigs. Yeah, it's like 12 hours, 12 Come hours. Because like when we drove to the Gulf, towed the boat, it's 2,500 k's from, from home to where we went to. So it's like two 12-hour days, basically. Because remember, you don't want to be driving on those roads in the middle of the night up that way. So you just, mm. don't, want to, you just don't want to be doing it. So. Mm. Anyway, let's stop dreaming about 
Uh, Terry, Terry, Terry will be talking more Stop about it. Stop talking about towing, towing, towing a, towing a refrigerated, cool, refrigerated unit up to the territory so we can go bring back a buffalo. Well, old mate that um, fired a few questions at us on um, YouTube mm-hmm. will be happy to oh, know mate. that we're considering how to bring more meat bring back. Bring back all that time. meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but oh, it's completely, it's completely different to the US. Yeah, the anchor. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, yeah. I hope that's not the driving of the question. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But Good. I'm thinking about it now. Because, anyway. yeah, um, no, yeah, that's right. Cool. Okay, let's move on. What are we doing? Uh, I think we're talking about hunting state forests, as in how to hunt a new state forest. Mm, okay. And this has been driven by a couple of um, inquiries that we've got. For instance, I'm helping someone at the moment who wants to hunt one of the further south, uh, this one from Queensland State Forest, looking for red and samba. And you, you've been talking about someone as well. Is that correct, Ian? Oh, daily. Daily mm-hmm. at the moment we have inquiry, which is, which is really great. Um, but most of those inquiries are, I guess, some new hunters, some not so new, but uh, all heading to places like Severn and Nundal or State mm. Forest for the first time. You know, they've jumped on the podcast. They've, they've learned that there's a big world out there that you can hunt that doesn't need private access, and um, they're given it a red-hot crack. So we help them out with as much information as we can, mm-hmm. and it does bring up a lot of interesting tactics and gear questions and how-tos and things like that. So I guess we'll cover a lot of that off tonight mm-hmm. if we can. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So I guess the first question is, how would you go about, how would you select a state forest? How would you, you know, what makes you go to Pelago? What makes you go to Severn, Nundal, et cetera? How would you choose which forest to go to? That's probably a good starting point, I would say. Yeah, it's a common question, eh? Mm. And I think um, I think uh, Mark's answer is going to be really similar to mine, I, I would think. But um, I start... The easiest way to answer that question is to go and look at harvest returns. Yeah. All right. There's, mm-hmm. there, there is um, there are a lot of people contact us saying that they've started their state forest hunting, hunting the parks closest to Brisbane, mm-hmm. and you go and have a look at those harvest return reports, and there's not a lot going on in those those parks. Now you can't believe everything everyone else says. Um, just because they weren't successful doesn't mean that you won't be, but. You know, there's there's a lot of data behind those returns now, and you know, even if someone was telling porcupines, uh, the majority of the people are either telling the truth or they're not answering at all. They're just saying nothing, 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 trying to hide it. I don't think there are too many people out there that are falsifying it and saying they saw heaps of things that they didn't. Um, and I, the reason I think that is because every park that I've ever been to, if I have a look at those harvest return reports, they're accurate. If they if they say they've got goats, I've, I've shot goats there. If they say they've got pigs, same thing. So I find those pretty reliable. And that's the very first thing that I do is find the parks closest to me or that are of interest that hold the game I'm chasing. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a smart way to look at those harvests. You know, they are they're, they work on, an, for want of a better word, an honour system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most people are going to say, yeah, I saw goats or, no, you know, and they might not be, you know, they might have said I saw 10 when there might have been 12, not because they're, they're hiding two, but, you know, in terms of, but they're going to give you a, a, a fairly accurate indicator of species 
in that area. Now, it's not going to say that, you know, behind the blue gum down on the creek line, there's a 34-inch billy waiting for you to come shoot him. It's not going to tell you that, but it's going to say there's goats there, there's deer there and things like that. So mm-hmm. I've always found that harvest returns give me a, a fair indication of where to go. Um, the next thing for me to multiply that is then to ring the DPI and see if you can talk to the guy who, who looks in that area and, you know, say, hey, look, we're looking to go down this way. What do you reckon? So actually talk to them. Mm. I do that a lot. Um, generally, they'll, they'll they'll answer you, you know. Yeah, they're, they're kind of wanting you to to go there. So giving them a call and seeing, asking if you can talk to one of the, the rangers or, you know, the, the, the particular officer that covers a certain area and ask him questions or her questions about, game in the areas is not a bad way of, uh, of finding stuff out mm. good point i do notice mm. that those um harvest return reports have changed again uh, well mm. again um, a little while ago now uh, it used to ask for volumes that you'd seen and mm. then just asks, shot, yeah. now they're only asking for what you've taken yeah um, so, yeah but it's still the data is going to be accurate so um it's a good way it's a good way to start yeah so and look, and that's not discredit distance drives or, you know, distance is something um, people have to consider. But um, so when you look at those forests that are close to Brisbane, again, if I was to look, if I was thinking about distance, um, it's been my experience that the west of the New England is a better place a better place to be rather than east of the New England Highway. And um, only because those forests seem to be harder to hunt, there seems to be a bit more opportunity. So if I was looking at close, you know, and we, we come back, to, we can't we can't ignore the, the Severn, you know. Severn is a close forest to Brisbane. There's other forests that are kind of equally close, not exactly, but, but Severn is a great producer and it's on the, you know, the western, western side, side of the New England Highway. Mm. Once you get into that, once you get into that, uh, it seems once you get into that, um, you know, hinterland range, there's game in there, but the, the scrub, the, you know, it's harder to, it's hard, they're harder blocks to hunt. And certainly, yeah. the further south you go, there seems to be more deer numbers. And but, and, I, but less I, I, and when people goats, talk about distance, I, that's my kind of my remedy to that because the reality is, the further you go south, so the more distance you treat, yeah. the better your, your better results go up through. Mm. You know, you, you you buy results through distance or time. You do, and mm. when you talk to guys who hunt, you know, who are from Sydney and that way, they say, you know. I'll tell you, the further the south you go, the better the better the forests. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, and it might be it might be because I'm um, an hour and a half closer to the hunting grounds than you guys are. But I I always say to people if they're gonna take the time to pack a car and go away for the weekend, a few extra hours in the car to get something a bit more productive is well worth doing. Yeah, you're gonna oh, enjoy yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, I'm the same. If I'm gonna drive four hours and be disappointed, or seven hours and be Successful. winning yeah. <laughs> this, this, okay sure seven it is but I mean mm. that's it so and I understand that that's not a, e- easy for everyone but I've found that if someone says to me should I go to say forest land in uh, around um, Tenerfield I would say look 
there's no doubt there's game in there, but if you drive a few more hours down to Nundal, then you'll you'll do certainly you'll do a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So so once you've um selected that park, um, what's your process then leading up to the hunt? You're doing much e scouting? I know it was a bit foreign to you a couple of years ago, but you probably picked it up a bit more now. Yeah, I I, I didn't e scout, that's for sure. Um, it's something that I've become more familiar with, not because I, I just didn't do it. I just went, I was kind of, I know we've had conversations with people who really plan and stick to their plan when they, when they go to hunt, mm. I was always a different, I was going to say, I'm not going to, when I, when I get on the ground, I know what I'm going to do. So that's yeah. why I didn't e-scout. I just went, I know what I'm, I'm going to know what I'm going to do, which is I'm going to cover a lot of ground and stuff like that i might and look i did not e-scout at all but i would kind of go where's water where's creeks and things like that familiarize yourself mm. rather than get right down oh, i want to explore this gully or something like that you see i'm i'm the opposite as soon as i book a forest or if i'm looking to book a forest i download the kmz off the dpr website get the latest map put that into google earth and i'm looking around seeing what's going on in the forest you know if there's an exclusion in certain areas that they're probably logging in that area um but i'm certainly analyzing that map trying to overlay it with you know more recent maps if possible you know landscape maps trying to understand what's going on on the ground to get a picture of what i'm walking into um and yeah i try and pre-plan as much as possible i know that might be different when you get there you walk into the forest and all of a sudden they've logged a certain area but they're very good at those maps. They keep those maps up to date. You've obviously got to download new maps every quarter, but they'll even issue updates within the within that quarter as well. So mm. I'm always keeping on top of those maps and, and trying to understand what's going on in the forest. You know, I went to Nundal a few years ago, then I had a few years gap, and the, the, the change in the forest was was unbelievable. Even year on year, mate. Year on yeah, year. It's, it's crazy. Is. So you've really got to stay on top of those maps and get an understanding of what's going on in that forest because it could change your plans. You could, you know, oh, I hunted this block last year. It was amazing. You walk in there, there's nothing there. Um, it's been it's been cleared. So I really try and stay on top of those maps wherever possible and and try and get a picture of what's happening. That's that's usually how I start planning a hunt. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of maps, you know, there's, there's the um, – there's obviously the the KMZs, which are for your for your GPS that you get as part of the when you when you do your your permit to hunt. But there's also other maps. So, for instance, this tourist map of the Pilliga. East Coast, a fantastic <laughs> map. Is, well, it's not it's not East scouting because it doesn't go in a. It doesn't go to like a forestry map, but what it does is it gives you this really, really good understanding of the, because you know one of the problems with forestry maps is it's it's the forest. This is yeah. the opposite. It says this is the the surround, so it gives you a really good understanding of the surrounds of the area as well. Um, it's actually I, I usually contact the um, the tourist bureau in Narrabri before I go and. They'll send. I buy a couple. They're like six ninety nine, or we'll pull in and buy them down there. But they're they're a they're a fantastic map of the Pilliga region. So it gives you a really good understanding of the region rather than the, the particular forest. The other maps that I I look at um, is for New South Wales is six map. Six mm. map is a is a, a much better quality map. You can get down to much better zoom levels, whatever the gradient terms are that they use, but it's a much, much better map 
to be able to look at and I find that they're more up to date than uh, Google Earth. Anyway, Google Earth's reasonably out of date for that area. There's probably some two of, or three years lag on it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. But I, I use it to, like you said, Mark, I have a look at um, the major creek systems that are on the map. I have a look at the major water. Um, I Especially if it's a new park. So I'll do, a, I'll do a heap of e-scouting if it's a new park I've never been there before. I'll be pretty excited to get there. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll be hunting it in my mind um, weeks before it, you know, and on the way down I'll be relaying that in my head and knowing exactly where I think I'm going to be going in the mental picture, what it's going to look like when I get there and all of that sort of stuff. But um, I, I use the e-scouting the most for those new parks. And then... Um, some people may or may not like this, but I use the drones after that. I've got a, a drone or two that I like to use, and I use that not so much for hunting, but to go and check if it's you know within distance of the of, of the main road or the track. I go and just verify that there is water in that area, whether that creek is a major creek. I, I did that a lot at Nundle in the early days, just to just to see what was real compared to what I thought it looked like on the map. Um, so I thought that was a pretty good trick. You can't use the drones for hunting. I don't think you can anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as soon as those things are buzzing in the air, the, the deer are scrambling for cover. Um, you can't herd goats with them. I've done that once before, but, um, you know, it's not really the spirit of it. Um, but I do use them, yeah, like I said, to verify a few things. So it's not a bad way to, to check a few things out. And when you're doing that e-scouting, are you changing what you're looking at based on the species? So if you're hunting deer, if you're hunting pigs, hunting goats, are you are you looking for different things on the maps? or? I don't hunt pigs. I, 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 no, I'm, I'm, I'm usually, I mean, if I'm going to Nundle, I'm hunting deer. Um, I'm not, I'm not hunting pigs. I'm not hunting goats. Um, am I looking at it different for Severn and places like that? Yeah, I would be. Absolutely, yeah. I would be because you know that they're daytime animals. You know that they're going to be travelling to and from water. Um, you know, deer do a lot of that nocturnally. Um, yeah. Goats are doing it during the day, so. Um, you can pick up a lot on on um, on uh, topographic, well, not topo maps, but the the satellite mapping. You can get mm-hmm. down to game trail level almost. You can see consistent stuff on the sides of hills <clears throat> um, that can give you an idea of animal movement. Um, but no, I, I don't. I think I do the same thing. Um, it's just day night. I don't know. They have different habits, but I don't think I look at the ground any different. Yeah, okay. Because I mean, if you're chasing goats, I mean, we know goats like rocky outcrops and things like that. Are you looking for those on the maps? If you if you know there's going to be goats in the area, or oh I mean, yeah, you, shit, you think yeah. of Severn, so think of that. Well, think of Pilliga. Right, look at the Pilliga. Uh, Severn, yes, uh, Pilliga is a great example because it's so flat, but you can find some rocky outcrops, you know, mm-hmm. using using Google Google Maps, and um, that they're gold mine. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely Mark's, gold mine. Mark's, Favorite thing that he said to me was, "Did I ever tell you goats like rocks?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a um, no. I do, I do. When I was looking, when I was looking at Pilliga, to start with, I was looking for water. I was, I was just canvassing those maps for anything that looked like a dam, um, something so that would find in the water. Pilliga. Hmm? It's hard to find in the Pilliga. Yeah, those, that's the, the thing. The, the water. Pilliga with water is that you mm, really. Yeah. You can look at it, but you only ever find out when you're on the ground in that place because yeah. of the way this. I mean, Nundle's different because it, you know it's 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 a wholly different climate. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, but Pilliger is you have to, but the, the interesting thing about with the Pilliger and water is that there can be water just underground and animals will, will you know, will, will basically will, will go to it. So, um, and a lot of the dams, especially in Pilliger West are really just soaks. You know, yeah. on the thing they're marked as, you know, they're a little blue blob and you think, oh, that's a dam. No, really, it's just a soak. So mm. um, that, you know, that obviously once upon the time, forestry guys put down, that's a soak. We know there's a soak there. So you'll, so, um, but you'll find that when you're in there, unless it's super dry, that there's actually, there's a feeling of presence of water around. So you often find activity in there just because there's a presence of water around. It's just underground or there may be a very small place where it's, it's still soaking out of the ground. But yeah. it's not like a nice dam, you know, like that's one of the, you know, one of the great things about Severn is I've never seen those dams dry out. I've seen them, you know, pretty skanky, but I've never seen them dry out. Mm. And, and the they're dams, you know, they're, they're actually dams, you know, they're, they are, mm. they're, they're, once upon a time, someone had that land before it went back to forestry and, and they built dams, you know, they, yeah, there's, there's one place that they pour concrete, yeah. you know, they made, mm. they made dam walls. Mm. So they, they, and they, they obviously, whoever did it was smart enough to put them in places where they don't seem to go dry. There's one particular one down there that does seem to go very alkaline and go green. Um, Which one's that? That well, you might say that's the one in the middle. If you were, if you're in the northern block and you were kind of going, uh, say, um, uh, clockwise, so the first one you come down, that's towards the creek, and it's got that really nice soak that runs down through yep. it, a couple of hundred meters mm -hmm. of green soak. That's I've never seen that out of water, but I've seen no. it low, but I've never seen it. The second one along, which is kind of directly the off the track almost on the, the boundary that mm. one i've yeah. seen kind of mm. funky green like yeah yeah the yeah. white because it looks like it's alkaline or something like that and mm. then the third dam which is the one that you might say is um, pointing back towards the the the, the bonshore road uh that dam i've seen that very low but never dry i've seen mm. it patchy but never dry and that because that seems to have a big feed that comes off the hill behind it um and runs slowly into it so they, they're like slow draining dams oh and that track down by that third dam you're talking about that is just a sludge i've sludge seen two vehicles bogged <laughs> now <laughs> yeah that's where rough. we had the worst bog bogging event yeah. that i've ever experienced so tim yeah. bogged his father-in-law's uh, borrowed Land Cruiser. And then Simon, who we just met, volunteered to come get us out. And he got bogged getting it out. So there was two <laughs> bogged vehicles. Who was driving the car in Nundle that had the uh, two-wheel experience? That's Timbo. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a theme. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the uh, operator, not the vehicle. Well, I don't want to draw I just think about it. No, well, he's had, look, uh, uh, Tim is a very good mate of mine. He's probably my best mate, and I'll, and I'll defend him because sometimes <laughs> he has bad luck. So at Severn <laughs> once, Severn once he got bogged on one of the middle tracks, and he just had his new winch fitted, brand new winch. And so he went, ah, oh, no problem. 
So uh, he got out and we ran the winch and we did, you know, we had the winch and we had the tree protector and we had the little flap over it to protect the cable. And, you know, it, it was like, it was like an ARB, you know, video of how to winch out properly. And I can remember it. I'm looking at him through the, so he's in the car and he's got the wide remotes to us, comes off the bonnet and he's in the car and he's kind of going like contact, you know, all the hand signals and we go contact and all the smoke pours out of the winch. <laughs> she goes up, goes up on him. That's it. It's gone. First time. And it's because the electrician's wired it incorrectly. Yeah, reverse, reverse polarity no, they on put that. a really dodgy wire on the, on, the, on, the, yeah. on the voltage lead and it just cooked a wire. Just bent it up. And so he had this winch seized. So yeah. now he was, had a seized winch with a cable under tension on the car. Oh, joy. Mm. And it, oh, that's so, great. you know, so what we had to do is we had a pig start, literally, literally, had, luckily had a chainsaw. And so we just pig started it, you know, lift, you know, got the bit up, bit up, bit up. And the pig start, the, 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 um, the tension actually helped us in the end because it, as it came out of the ground, it kind of pulled it a bit forward, you know, because it was under tension. And we got it out. And then um, and Darcy was able to drive all the way around because he didn't want to go past him, get bogged. And we did a snatch and got it out. It got, got it to a point where we could get it out. So, yeah, that, that was that was yeah. hilarious. He goes, I remember looking at him, you know, he's got all the gear, everything. It's all brand new. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a, not quite the same experience, but the first time I needed to use a winch and the last time I needed to use a winch because – I've installed them on cars and never used them. They seem to be a massive waste of money for me anyway. I'm sure people yeah. go much harder core places than me and use them all the time. Um, but, I, yeah, I was I was in a, a shitty situation. I needed to winch out, and the um, the rope spun on the drum. Just yeah. no, It wasn't yeah. connected to the drum. Oh, okay. So the drum turned. <laughs> just didn't bind. The rope didn't grab it. It's like a coffee grinder. Didn't, <laughs> didn't bind. Just, yeah. So it was hopeless. Well, Tim and Simon recently got bogged in the Pilliga and had a 35k walk. Oh, Pilliga, Severn, and Nundle. Like no, no, I didn't get bogged at Nundle. Nature. Oh, bogged at Nundle. Didn't... Been bogged at Nundle, got bogged at Severn and Pilliga. Didn't they get an Uber? So they managed to walk out to the highway mm-hmm. and, you know, that was a long walk. And they lit, literally rang Uber, and the Uber came down, <laughs> picked them up, and drove them back. Driving back, no, drove them Forest Way, because they they were at um uh, Swedish so Sport. He came out of came out of Nor- He came out of Narrabri, picked yeah. them up, drove them along Forest Way to Swedish Bore, because that's you know that's a road, <laughs> and they went and they got there and you know flaked out the next morning because the yeah. other vehicle was there, and then drove them and got the other vehicle. That must have been an expensive Uber. Well, I don't know, but uh, I'm sure they were both pretty hammered. By it was a, it sounded like a very long journey. Mm. Wow, thirty-five k. Wow, wow. Mm. wow. Uh, what and us, again, yeah. it was that, it was that, it was that, that terrible. You know, you're driving along, and the road just went yeah. and just gave out on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about water. Water. That's what mm. we're talking about. And Pelig yeah. is one of those places that it can get a sniff of water and turns to quicksand, mm. pretty much. And the 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 last time that I went out there. Uh, that river uh, on the or the creek river, whatever you want to call it, on the left hand side as you're heading south, that parallels the road, was mm-hmm. up. 
Mm. There's a lot of water running in that. There were fish yeah, in it. The life was amazing. Uh, Bohemia Creek, mm. I think that's that is. Yeah. Bohemia Creek. Yeah. Um, so the animals, I mean, they had water all over the place. There was that mm. much around. It made them a lot harder to find. So, again, that's something to consider yeah. when you're booking places like the Pilliga, as if there is, a, or even Severn, but, you know, specifically, you know, goat-type country, I guess. Um if it's rained, if there's been an event sometime before it, those animals, they're not drawn to that water anymore, so they're scattered. Well, we had, yeah. we had yeah. moisture in the grass that mm. you were talking about before. It looks green and it looks like there's water underneath. You can get a lot of moisture mm. out of the, the pick that yeah. you're eating um, yeah. that stops them needing to drink. So. so the last time John and I hunted Pilliga mm-hmm. with Simon and Darcy, Darcy yeah. they went down the day before and they were there at Narrabri when this afternoon st- the storm rolled through and dropped about 40 mils and it just went south. And Pilliga is flat when you look at it, but it's actually like, it's like a slow slope. It's mm. slow, it slopes mm. down south to the creek. And so when you get down to the bottom there, the, how big it is, the amount of water that goes through, it's like, you know, the channels that were carved through that, you just, there must've been a huge amount of water, slow runoff. So they were there, they got 40 mils and they went in and then we were there and it didn't rain. Did it rain when we no. were there? But the first three days, Couldn't there find was game. no game side at all because, you know, every dirt track had a had a drain full of water. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, literally where animals were standing, there was water. Yeah. So when it started to dry out, that's when yeah, we started took, to see games. It took three, at least three days for it to start drying up a little bit. And that's and when we started, started seeing game. game, and they were starting to group together again. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's an interesting place because, um, and I've been there when it when it when it floods. We were there in two thousand and nine or two thousand. Uh, I think the the Christmas New Year of two thousand nine two thousand and ten, with a big group of us. And on the last day, it started to flood, and we managed to get out. Mm. But it was yeah, we were the uh, same. Yeah, it was a close we run thing. It was a close. We run were thing. about we were about forty five minutes drive from camp to where we were hunting. Had a new hunter with me, Zully. You would have remembered him from a while back. He came with me to the Pilliga and we shot his first animal ever, which was pretty cool. We live streamed that at the time, and um, uh, on the well, it was wasn't our scheduled last day, but we were up on a big rock feature, um, quite some way from camp, and this huge deluge came down, mm-hmm. and. Um, we um we were just laughing about it because it was so hot. We were there in summer. It was it was January. It was hot, and it just rained and it just absolutely belted us. And it went from stinking hot to quite cold um, pretty quickly. Um, and we didn't think much of it. I mean, I didn't think much of it because I've not really been there in a massive water event. Um, and we just sort of waited it out. We got drowned for half an hour, forty minutes, something like that. Went back to the car, and on the way back to camp, we were pretty slippery slidey mm. um, trying to get back to camp. And we thought, oh, this is a bit interesting. We get back to camp and our um, our buddies um, had gone, this is bad. We're leaving. <laughs> and they were gone. They packed up and left. <laughs> I had my camper still set up. They tried to batten it down. And the wind that came through was absolutely yeah. crazy. It was just crazy. But uh, <laughs> we got this message from the guys. Sorry, mate, we're bugged out. Um <laughs> Thanks, Dwayne. Well, on that last trip, Mark, when we were there, we were 
the last morning, well, the, the last evening we checked the forecast and there was a big rain event coming and you're like, we're mm. getting out of here. We're not hunting in the morning. We are packing up camp and getting out because yeah. Mark knew what was coming and we got out of there. And I think we were just outside Narrabri when it started raining. Yeah. And we had quite a bit of rain after that. And uh, I would hate to be in there when mm. there's 100, 200 mils coming through. Yeah. Well, I had to pack the camper up and drag it out. Um you know those rock features you're talking about on the on the um, the eastern side, mm. yeah, the far eastern side, quite, yeah, quite a way up that way, and we had to cross through that creek that was already high yep. when we went in, so it was raging on the way on the way back. Well, not raging, but we had to brave it. That's for sure. And, mm. um, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I was there with one year with Tim again with Simon and Darcy, and we were there. Uh, early February, I think it was. So we're right there, stinging middle, you know, summer, and forty degree days, forty plus degree days, and one afternoon this summer storm came through, and it, me and Tim were coming back from Narrabri. Had a, we went in the Narrabri, had a, had a flat tire, and we thought, oh, let's go get it fixed. So you got spikes. So well, let's go get this fixed. So you, you know, you, you still got your spare. And we were coming back, and it hit us. And man, it was it was a it was a, a really raging storm, and it was blowing us all over the road. And you just water was coming up, but it moved through pretty quick. But um, our camp was smashed to pieces. But mm-hmm. it was. Well, let's, uh, let's use that as a as a segue into um, equipment. Then, so when you're cha- when you're heading into state forest, what recovery gear are you taking? What's your okay. car rigged up with? And sure. what extra gear are you taking with you so it so a lot of depends on how you want to hunt a state forest but the way i want to hunt a state forest is if i'm there i don't want to leave unless i gotta leave like you know like we're talking about so i want to be wholly self-sufficient now i know like other guys like to you know go drive the local pub or stay in local town and whatever it is that's how they want to hunt it that's up to them but for me i want to be wholly self-sufficient so that's kind of the mindset of where i start with my gear so um kind of working backwards so if i'm there for five days i want food for five days Mm -hmm. if i'm there for five days i want water for five days especially plates i i don't use local water um, the only time I've already used local water is when we're in Nundal and we were down the Ponderosa and I was using that dam as a, for, for washing up, stuff like that, mm. you know. But generally, so I'm going to take food, I'm going to take water and we're going to take fuel in. We've all, the, the crew I usually hunt with, we all run diesels, which is really good. So we just literally amongst ourselves taking a little bit of diesel each because what we'll do is we'll have usually one vehicle left in camp all the time so there's a recovery vehicle in camp so there's food water fuel and then all your camping and equipment and cooking gear i've always said to people you know find friends or make friends that hunt or people who are interested because then you do load sharing you know i'll take this you take that so, you know, you don't go into camp and there's four gas cookers and <laughs> four gas yeah, bottles yeah. and stuff. You share, load share. Um, 
I think it was the first Weber I ever saw in camp. I think John A brought that I did. and I'm, I'm become a a a a, a, a convert. Yeah, so I think I think someone, I someone bring a Weber. I think Web man I think I cooked everyone's if you, dinner. If you that can, time. they're fantastic. Oh, they are man. great. They're yeah, just fantastic. They're good. Yeah. So what we tend to do is, as a group, we'll build a single camp, and then we'll we'll have our own bits and pieces around that. And so, but I want for me self sufficiency. So for my vehicle, I got a four wheel drive. Um, I, I used to, the first couple of hunts I did, I didn't have a four-wheel drive. We should just pull off the side of the road and walk in. So I got a four-wheel drive and it's decked out for four-wheel driving. So, you know, all the recovery gear. So winch, um, I take my recovery boards and my recovery gear. So, you know, shackles and tree protectors and things like that, shovel. And um, so yeah, and, um, and more importantly, they make my car, make sure my truck's in good working order. Um, I've always been a CB guy, but I'm I'm finding that you know there's other things better now, like the Zolios and stuff mm. like that. They're just That's getting right. just replacing that stuff. Mm. Um, so I probably the D Max has a CB, but I probably wouldn't, I won't get another one in in the next vehicle. Oh, I'll go, I'll go handheld now. Yeah. The only time I'm I use CB yeah. is now with the family when we're doing road trips. I put it on and listen to truckies, mm. you know. So when we're yeah. any kind of distance, or you come up on a vehicle that's you know that needs passing like a wide load, you can talk to them. But I'm not using it in a hunting situation mm. anymore. So yeah, I, mm. I've slowly built up over time a capable four-wheel drive, and um, you know that right through to what kind of tire selection I run and things like that. And I, I. Again, when you, it, it's an impost, but when you need it, it it's not an impost. Like when we were going yeah. through that mud, that slop at um, uh, Hanging Rock this year, you know, I was comfortable. The vehicle was sure-footed and we were comfortable and the, the, bigger, the bigger tires were doing the work and I didn't feel at any time it got a bit, you know, it got too... You know, I didn't feel, didn't get worried or anything like that. It was, it was capable and comfortable, and it's, you know, it's a good, it's a good decked out truck, so it's a good base camp to work out of. But yeah, for me, I want, um, I want to be self sufficient. So that's the kind of mindset of everywhere I start. Cool. Yeah, definitely. And for me, yeah, to add to yeah, yeah. for me, I mean, yeah. meat recovery is quite important for me. I like to utilize what I shoot to the best of, you know, a territory is slightly different, but I like to make sure that I've got a good esky that is capable of keeping me cold. Uh, I know when we go to Severn or Perga, we always make sure we've got a couple so that we can keep them stocked mm. up. We, you know, we fill them up with ice, make sure they're nice and cold so that we can keep that meat. I think having a good esky in camp or a couple of good eskies in camp is good. Um, and it helps keep the beers cold, which is always nice at the end of those long days. Um, I agree with Mark on, from a cooking, I think the gas cook is great. Um, you know, as a South African, we try and, you know, you brought up that you cook everything on an open fire, but I've been in a situation where I've planned to cook on an open fire, you know, throw some sausages or whatever, and you rock up in the pillager and there's a sign saying you can't have a campfire. So you need to be prepared for, you know, if you're going to be self-sufficient to be prepared for situations like that, that you have alternative. Don't think you can chuck, just chuck the billy on the open fire to make your coffee in the morning because potentially you can't have a fire. That's a very good point and something that people may not be aware of, especially if they're new to State Forest. Um, fire bans are not just a fire ban from the fire service. Mm-hmm. Um, State Forest can and do um, remove the ability to light fires yeah. mm-hmm. the whole season, three months over summer, just not allowed to light a fire. It doesn't matter whether it rains yesterday or not. Mm-hmm. 
um, yeah, be aware of that because that's a good that, point. That's it because when you get it, when you go like the real fire brigade website, you know, and you look at the fire bands, which you should, it talks about a region and it means everything within that region is under a fire ban, and that's from a that's from the firefighting perspective, you know. Whereas state forests are a work environment controlled by forestry or whoever they are now, so they make a decision. We do not want we do not want fires in this work environment for this period of time. Mm. And so, yeah, so that's what we found when we went to the Pilliga. Yep, exactly. Luckily, it. we had gas with us, mm-hmm. so John, I didn't have to eat. You know, raw or whatever it is, <laughs> burkwurst or whatever he was going to chop on. Burrowhorse, <laughs> burrowhorse, <laughs> that, <laughs> that stuff. Because that's it. Yeah, we yeah. would have been stuck. He would have been stuck if we couldn't have cooked. And look, I mean, I love cooking. Yeah. Love cooking on the open fire, but the gas is just far more convenient. It's cleaner. It's quicker. You come back after a long day. If you got to get the fire going before you can get some coals going before you can even chuck some meat on, I'd rather just fire up the weather. That's so much easier. Yeah, it's gas is for hunters. <laughs> Fires for camping. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, look, that, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> look, it, you know, like. Uh, you know, like everyone, the you know sitting around a fire and all that stuff's fantastic. But it, especially if you're down in this, in like somewhere like Pilliga in summer, you know they're long days. Mm. They're big mm. long days, um, and uh, you know you might travel a long way in a day. You might go, you know what? I reckon we explore, you know, east of the highway today. So that's a long trip in itself. Mm. So by the time you get back to camp, you you don't want to be kind of going, oh, okay, well now I need to start my day again. You just want better, mm. you want convenience, yeah. and that's why I like the gas. And, you know? and also from a food perspective, I like to take emergency food. So I normally have you know your pack meal, dehydrated meals, or something like that, just in case. Because I've I've shot a I, and not last year, I think the year before in the raw, I shot a red stag right on last light, and I had to pack that thing out. I didn't get back to camp until ten thirty at night. The last thing I want to do is then get out a steak and season a steak and get the fire going. I just boiled some water, chucked it into a dehydrated meal, and there's my dinner, and I hit the sack. So I like to have emergency I rations. Think, I, yeah, I think I think you're spot on. On a, on a New Zealand trip that we had, um, you know, we were 16, 18 hours on the foot uh, by the time we got got down into this big, big, big galley, shot a stag, and we're on our way back up. Mm-hmm. We, we were out of energy. We yep. were stuck, mm-hmm. and we're sitting on a ledge on the edge of this mountain and we just went, Agar, let's cook up a feed. Mm. You know, um, we, we weren't that far from camp, but it was a lot of effort still to get back to camp. Yeah. Yeah. And that emergency ration that we were carrying was, was worth every, every bit. It's not something I want to tuck into if I have to. No, I think those it's, said, meals it's are... an emergency ration. It's not like I'm planning to have that for dinner every night, um, yeah. but it's certainly there if yeah. I need it. Um, it's something I'll always have is emergency rations, emergency water, um, if I'm going for five days and I'm planning on having three liters a day, I'll take an extra three liters just in case because there's some big days. I always take electrolytes. Um, there's been some big days. I mean, look at on our recent trip in. I mean, um, John he struggled on that first morning, and you know he was in the tent feeling he had a bad headache. I had electrolytes, and I actually learned that from that territory trip was how important electrolytes are. I take them on every trip now. I've always got electrolytes on me because. I think Mark, I think in the Pelagor as well, you had you had an issue as well, didn't you? The one time with some dehydration. Oh, yeah, one one year, yeah, I got I got pretty knocked around one year. I um, that's when I shot that really big Billy, <laughs> that monster, and dragging him out, 
in the 40 degree plus heat. Mm. Got back to, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I I went back to camp and just basically loaded up. I I always carried those um, electrolytes in the little metal tube, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the effervescent style ones that you just drop into your water. Had three or four of those, went and just went clonk and conked out and slept 12 hours and woke up okay. But, yeah, that that was a tough one. But, I mean, the thing was I was dragging it back to the car and, and it was relatively okay. I would have hated to, you know, been on foot any further than I what I had to do. And plus, I was probably been a little bit too gung ho by dragging it out myself. Um, yeah, and I, I think um, it's important. Like the, these emergency rations and the electro, the electrolytes are super important. I, I agree with that. And some of these smallest parts, you know, um, we mentioned this on a Severn podcast some time ago. That uh, I'm surprised how many times um, that the Severn has um, has beaten somebody up and spat them out mm-hmm. the other side. Uh, it's not a big park. You look at it and you go, I mean, how how hard can it be? I'm I'm only ever maybe two kilometres from the car. It's not a hard walk, even if it's uphill. But man, it can belch you. Mm-hmm. And um, we had one of our listeners out there the other day. He heard that on our podcast, and he uh, he rang and he said, "Which part of Severn were you in?" And you know, I, I showed him where we were, and he went down there on a hunt, and he said oh, it busted me, mm. yeah. it absolutely busted me. And he was dragging animals out as well, but um, it, it, it can happen real fast. Well, the, the the worst situation I've ever been in wasn't me; it was another hunter. But the worst was yeah. Severn. Mm. And in the end, I literally got the map out and said, "Mate, you're, you're 500 meters from the road if you just keep going." And he could not do it. Crazy, that, mm-hmm. that was it, and that that, yeah. that was in yeah. So yeah, you know, you don't have to be in the middle of night. You know, you don't have to be in a great big expanse. It's, you know, the, the trouble with hunting is it's it's hiking in reverse. You know, you, you go for a hike, and the harder it, that the, as the days progress, your pack gets lighter. You know, we're stupid enough to kind of go, gee, it's hard. Look, let's load up my pack now. <laughs> Put forty kilos on top. Yeah. And, and, and before I do, yeah. and before I do that, after I've done all this incredibly difficult activity, I'm now going to grab really sharp knives and start playing with them. Yeah, you could so, easily slip and cut yourself. That's and... right. You know, if it was a workplace, they would go. You know, do not operate machinery in this state. You go. Okay. Well, let's get my knives out. <laughs> so yeah. Right. You know. Okay. So Lynn. Um, Thinking about knives and injuries, um, we haven't talked about the type of gear you're carrying in your pack. I mean, we've done pack breakdowns, so we don't need mm. to go through all of that stuff again. But um, first aid kits are an interesting one because not many of them are built for hunting specifically. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get these big first aid kits. They've got all sorts of crap in them that you're never, ever going to use. Um, do you custom customise yours or are yeah. you throwing in off the shelf? So, I, you know, you, you're 100% correct. First aid kits generally are like, you know, they're generalist things, mm-hmm. you know, that though you can get special ones like for car and stuff like that, but sure. it, they're generalist. So what I discovered when I was updating my hunting first aid kit was was these one-off kits designed so there's like I've got a trauma kit. Mm-hmm. So this first aid kit, it's only that big, and it's designed for someone who has significant trauma. So, you know, gunshot wound, stab wound, something like that. 
So that's what it's designed for. And it's and, and I don't open it. It's actually in a seal bag and it sits in there. And the only thing that I've added to it, so that's in my pack. So the my idea is if someone hurts themselves or I hurt themselves, that that kind of thing where they're you know blood squirting out mm. of them, you can use this to address that. The only thing that I've added to it is one of those snake bite bandages that have the the, the, um, the retention the, the tension that, bands. that, that, that pattern yeah. that comes in the elastic yeah. when you get it at the right tension. And I've got a really Did big you one. Try on that out? No, I haven't tried it out. You should try that out. Yeah, because I, I know that. I know that that's you right. Need... You, you, you get. Yeah, yeah. I know that when yeah. we used to do it in first yeah. aid, you really kind of got up. Yeah. 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 And that's why. <laughs> that's why those the having those straps on it that show the correct tension is so important. Yeah, that's it. Because otherwise, you would never do it. That's hard. Oh, it's a bit hard. I'm no. not it has to be. It needs to yeah. be. So that's it. Mm. So in my pack, I've got a trauma kit. Yeah. So I'm I'm very similar. I've got a I bought an off the shelf first aid kit that's got your normal band aids and things like that. I've added in the snake bite, snake bite bandages. I've got two snake bite bandages plus some trauma stuff. Plus I was always taught one some of the best stuff to put in for a gunshot wound is tampons. Um, yeah. And that's I've got a couple of them in um, just in case. So if there's a big hole, if I get stabbed or anything like that, you can put it in. It's going to expand and stop the bleeding. Um, that's yeah. really, but I've got a tourniquet from a, from a, um, from a, the trauma kit. You know, you put that up in the, if it's a leg wound, you put it up in the groin or the, up in the, um, tourniquet. That's what I've yep. got in mind. That's yeah. part of the trauma kit, um, is to stop bleeding. Cause if you think about it, if we get really hurt, it's going to be a sharp knife. It's going to be a gunshot wound or something yeah. like that. It's going to be a lot of bleeding. You want to stop that bleeding. So I've got that's a tourniquet, it. uh, I've got some tampons in there and then some, general bandages plus snake bite kit. That's what I've got. Plus yeah. I've got now, you know, we've got the Zolios so that if, you know, shit hits the fan, push that SOS button. I'm, I don't go anywhere without my PLB, whatever brand it is. We use Zolio. We think it's great, but I don't go anywhere without that now. Yeah. So back at camp or in my, in my, in my truck, I have a general first aid kit. Mm. And that's actually really generalist, i.e. I've got things in there like, Cold tablets, you know, cold and flu tablets, you know, loss, float lozenges, all that, just basically stuff that all, all sorts of things like that. Just so if people go, man, I, you know, I'm starting to get scratchy or something like that, you go, here, have this so you can continue, you know, enjoy your, your trip away. So, yeah, I've got a really <clears throat> comprehensive first aid kit in the truck. But in my pack, it's, that's it. To me, it's all about trauma. You're going to, you're probably going to hurt yourself seriously and you need to be out or someone's going to get hurt seriously. You need to be able to do something about that in the immediate and then rely on, um, rely on whatever service you got, like your personal locator beacon yeah. or Lazolio or whatever it is to, for, for the emergency part of it. This is where I pause mm. and say, at this point in time, we should be saying, and this is when you head to our website onto the this page and you'll see the Zolio, the smart snake bite bandage and all of the other bits and pieces that you can see in your kit. www.thehunterscampfire.net is where it will be. Yeah, that's it. That's what we should that's be doing, but we're not smart enough to do that. No, 
No, no, no. A gambling man would say, this is what we are doing yeah. because Jono's going to make that happen mm-hmm. in the next... It'll, oh, okay. know, by the time this is, It'll this absolutely, oh, yeah, anyway, absolutely yeah, yeah, be out right. there. Don't I just you... Googled the smart eight bite compression bandage and it's there. Mm-hmm. And we you know what we should do? We should put... That's it. If you're listening to this, by the time you hear it, some... Some, if not all of this gear, should be listed on the website. www.thehutterscampfire.net. There you go. Fantastic. You'll see all our favorite um, don't die yeah. products. So yeah. uh, you're talking about knives and stuff. Um, my love. Sorry, <laughs> one of those people who stabs themselves constantly. My lovely wife bought me one of those um, uh, mesh gloves. Metal, mesh, the, yeah. the chain mesh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I carry that in my pack. Do you? It and yeah, it's heavy, or it's not that heavy, but yeah, you got it's heavy. A block tackle in there as well. What? Just what? You got a bandsaw? So you carry a block and tackle and a no, chainsaw no, no. and no. reciprocating saw, spare batteries. No, just just a chainmail glove. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's what the it 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 yeah. That's it. That's it in there, and you know what? It works. <laughs> it works. Right. Oh, look at that! No blood. Well, and that's 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 the thing, right? Um, so knives knives are an important part of our kit, mm. um, and blunt knives are so bloody dangerous. Um, sharp ones sharp are pretty dangerous. Are pretty dangerous. <laughs> sharp yeah, are pretty but dangerous blunt too. knives cause more injuries, I think, because you <laughs> yeah. put so Maybe. much pressure on what yeah. you're doing, and it causes more accidents. Blunt, blunt knives are dangerous. Um, learn to sharpen your knives. Or yep. so get, get the ones with the replaceable blade. That's even better. That's what yeah, I've got there. I, I, After I edge with kind the... of gone away from those. Have you? Well, I think they're great. Yeah. Because the reason I went away from them is there is a time if you do, I, when I, I did a couple of deer with it and I, I realized I had all these little kind of semi-blunt, or not blunt, but bluntish scalpel blades laying around everywhere. And I went, how am I going to dispose them? How do I police those things up? I just yeah. didn't like the mm. fact. And, you know, and again, you know, I'm getting tired, more tired. And I'm, my, you know, mm. as the work goes on, I'm thinking, I hardly want to not realize one of these things and sit down on it or something like that. Yeah, so so what I've, I do, I've got, I've kind of I've gone got, away from them. I've got one. Um, and I think they're great because they're sharp. And if it gets blunt, I can just put out the blade mm. and change it. I keep, the plastic sheath that comes with them. Mm. As soon as I change the blade, I put that sheath on, and then I put them back into the um, the, the, the holder that the knife came in, and then I dispose yep. of those in the shop spin um, at the pharmacy. Is what I do. That's it. So that, that was the only thing I. I, I agree. I didn't like all those blades. I, I can see that happening. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I um. I had a. There's a guy in our club who uh, uh, he was an engineer, and he had a passion for sharp knives. He just loved sharp knives, and he came over and we actually did some recording here to show people how to sharpen their knives. But unfortunately, my recording was terrible and it never got to air. Unfortunately, but he did show me how to sharpen knives properly. Um, and you'll see these things pop up on your Facebook feed all of the time. These um, sh- knife sharpening jigs, you seen those mm-hmm. wasabi, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, and they're you know a lot of them are rip off whatever. But um, I bought the first one, and it was the worst piece of crap that I could possibly. It had suction cap onto the the bench top that didn't suction cap on anything. It was hopeless. 
um, and you clamp your knife into it. But the problem with the cheap ones is you clamp your knife into it, you sharpen, like you might do 10 strokes, so then you've got to turn it over. You've got to undo screws to turn it over mm -hmm. on the cheap ones. And then you do your 10, then you do 9, then you do 8, 7, 6, 5, all the way down. Then you change the grit. Then you change the grit again. So you might be you might be running a couple of hundred strokes across the blade to get it like really, really sharp by the time you get it down to a leather strop, polish it. Uh, but anyway, he showed us how to do that. Again, um, I ended up chucking that piece of junk in the bin and I bought what was potentially going to be another piece of junk, but it was the wasabi version, but it has a, um, it, it's got a rotating. Mm, I've seen clamp. that one. Yeah. <clears throat> so you can go slide, 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 rotate, slide, slide, so you don't have to undo the knife. It is brilliant. Okay. Really, really, really good. And I can sit here when I'm working and I'm on the phone and I'm not on my video and I can sharpen the knives up as I need to do it. And they do a brilliant job. Um, yeah. I, I sharpened the first time I used it to sharpen my proper hunting knife. Uh, I think I've been through four, now four deer breakdowns. And all I've done is is run the strop over it just mm. to keep it keep the edge yeah. right, and it's it's great. So I recommend people look at those. Get, get your knife yeah, well, sharp. I think the original one was the Lansky. I think the that Lansky was, the brand. was that one. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, but um, Workshop do a nice one. Hmm. Yeah. So I've got the little Workshop and, um, portable one that I use in the field to keep. Yeah, yeah. in the field, yeah. I carry the little Workshop, which has got the either the twenty degree yeah. angle or the fourteen degree yeah. angle. Yeah. yeah. And yep. it's got, you know, and it's got the ceramic rod and it might either, one I've got is a ceramic rod, the other side is like a diamond stone and the other one on the other side is actually a, the, the, a, a the bit strop. of leather stropping. Yep, I've got the exact same one. And I actually find those things to be fantastic. Same. So what I do... If you do if you do the work at home mm -hmm. with those little stay sharp things, you, you're just in the field, you can one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four and you're, you're back in action. Yeah, so what I do, maybe a little bit lazy, and I need to look at one of those, um, like the wasabi one, is I actually take my knives in about every second year to a professional knife sharper, sharpener, yep. and I get him to do my butcher knives and my field knives, um, and then I'll then use the workshop for the next, you know, over the course of a season mm -hmm. to keep that edge, but every two years I'm, I get it professionally sharpened. It costs me 15 bucks a knife maybe, um, yep. And it's a professional edge that gets put on then. And then once I know that I can't get that back, I send it, I take it and I drop it off on a, on a Monday morning and I pick it up on a Friday and they're good to go for two yep. years. That's what I do. Um, and there's a guy in Brisbane by the name of the knife doctor over in Stafford. Stafford. That's who I go to. That's him. Who is also my benchmark, benchmade dealer. Oh, really? So that's <laughs> your <yeah>. dealer. <laughs> He's my dealer. My, my some dealer. people deal in drugs, Mark deals in knives. That is not... so. That's that's who so... I take my knives to, mate. Is in Stafford. Yeah, yep. that's it, and that's it. And, and my mate Tim well, does the same. My mate Tim does the same. He doesn't hunt all that often, so when he's going, you know, he only hunts a few times a year. So when he when he's got like a big the severe, uh, sorry, the Nundle hunts probably his biggest hunt of the year, single one. He does that. He takes them all in, gets them all ready to go. That's what I do. You know, yeah, a bit of maintenance, and uh, yeah, I'll very bring good this idea. Jig to our hunt. Um, that we're mm. planning next month and you can have a crack at it and see what yeah, you think. Be good. I think they come up really, really good. Oh yeah. Um, they're great. That the, as I said, workshop, we've got sharp, we've got a new one where you can actually change the angles a lot easier too. So you, yeah, you, know, you, get, well. you can get different pitch on the blade. So like 
So like some of the new Benchmade's, bench made knives have a, run a 14 degree angle so it's a bit different so. mm-hmm. yeah yeah again um the main feature on these knife sharpening jigs to look out for if you're looking to buy one is the rotating mm. clamp if you can't pull it it's on a spring you pull it out and twist it and then you can sharpen the other side pull it out it's really quick and easy the first one i got you couldn't do that and it was just a nightmare yeah. so um have a look at those that's knives sharpening that's stabbing yourself that's fixing yourself with tampons uh we're doing a good job (laughs) Uh, we've got bogged we've winched ourselves out um i want to switch this conversation now and this is another piece of gear you desperately want to talk about and talk about how you hunt it and Mm. we've had the offline conversation about this um and probably all of our opinions the number one most important factor for this is the wind there's nothing mm-hmm. else that beats the wind when it comes to thinking about how you hunt. Um, who wants to lead that? Jono? Sure. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's hard to tell looking at a map, but you can get an understanding of where you're going, what the prevailing winds are. I think that's one thing I'd be looking at. Um, and also when you're looking at elevation is thinking about your thermals. A lot of people don't consider thermals, how that changes the dynamic of where you're hunting. Um, so, you know, you've got cold air that in the evening when the cold air is, the evening, you know, the temperature is dropping, that cold air is going to start sinking into the gully. So if you're hunting a gully system and you're, you know, all of a sudden the wind's going to turn as that sun starts setting and the wind starts changing, um, it's going to start heading down slope. Um, and then the opposite's going to happen in the morning where, you know, when that starts, you know, hot air rises, it's going to start coming back up. So you need to consider thermals and prevailing winds. For me, that's that's a big thing to have a look at. Look at, you know, jump on the websites, have a look, find out what the prevailing winds are. Get an understanding of topography as well, because, you know, if you've got a massive big gully system or a big, you know, a big spur that's coming out, that's going to change that wind direction. Get an understanding of, um, you know, what, mm. what those prevailing winds are and then have a plan. You know, how am I going to hunt this, this gully system? How am I going to hunt this, you know, this valley that I'm going into? If the prevailing winds are a southerly or a southeasterly or something like that, well, understand where you're going to come in, where you're going to drop in and hunt it, but have an alternative plan in case the wind swings. That's what I'm looking at. With you have to, you have to, you have, to have a, a, an alternative plan because it's not always going to be perfect. It's not going to be like it's written on paper. Yeah, and you can't you can't just continue on with your plan regardless of the wind. No. Like if you if you've e-scouted your life away, you knew where you were going to camp, you knew where you wanted to walk. If the wind's all wrong, abandon it. Change and it. Come up with a new plan. Yep, absolutely. You can't, you can't walk with the wind on your back. No. It doesn't work. <clears throat> I was just going to touch on the thermal thing. Um, I, when I talk to people about thermals, I, I get them to think about fog. Mm. You know, if you've ever spent a morning out there in the fog. So the trick with thermals, one of the things that people don't consider too much, because you, you're right, um, in the evening, everything settles down. And in the morning, when the sun hits the faces, as soon as that, you know, you know the you know when the sun's rising in the morning is the coldest time of the morning. Mm-hmm. That dawn period, it gets really freaking cold. Um, the sun's actually up at that point, um, but it's when that sun starts to warm the faces that the thermals start to rise. But for the first hour of light, that pre-dawn light, the thermals are still dropping. Mm, it's still cold. You notice that yeah. early morning fog. Yeah. It, it needs that heat. Fog. It needs that heat. It needs that heat. It needs the heat to yeah. push up. So if you're thinking about hunting a gully, and I mean a lot of this um, this thought goes into hunting big systems, not small creeks and gullies, I guess, because they don't get the the big push of sun um, that some of the big faces would get. But um, if you're thinking about hunting, you know, a, a large face that's going to get the early morning sun, 
by rights, you need to be at the bottom of that creek first thing in the morning mm. because the first thing that's going to happen is that fog's going to settle or those thermals are going to settle into the base of it. You might have an hour, and then you've got to bust all the way up. up mm. Because as soon as that, that sun hits, it's going to push those thermals up and going to go. Mm. So there's, it's quite complicated the way that thermals operate. Mm. Um, but I think they still, in my, my opinion anyway, and I'm happy to be told otherwise, they run secondary to wind. Mm. Um, the, the wind needs to be your number one um, thought. Uh, and when I was writing a, um, a notebook, I used to, you know, when I was new into some of these blocks, and I'd take a notebook, and if I saw animals at right conditions, and I'd try and piece together a matrix and a puzzle about what was going on, I also did that with wind. So if the prevailing wind was a, a westerly, but I had a north-south gully, I'd write down which way the wind was going when mm. it hit those gullies in those parks because it, it seems to always consistently suck and go the same way. Like it might be a westerly, but you've still got the updraft that mm. goes up the creek. And I, I've never found that that draft follows the direction of water. Sometimes it goes against, sometimes it mm. goes forward. So um, I haven't quite mastered what that does, but um, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable that in most of these places where I've found a westerly hits a north-south, especially in Nundal, that draft heads south. It doesn't head north. Along that gully. So anyway, that's my my observation in Nundal. It's different everywhere you go. Ma? Yeah, look, I, I I don't yeah it's kind of one of those fundamentals. You can't discredit it. Um the the way I tend to hunt everywhere is I is I I kind of go, okay, well, let's let's look at this area today. So there's a, some sign of decision making, we're gonna to go to a particular area. And I start to make decisions when I get on the ground. So I, I kind yeah. of say, okay, I'd like to hunt this area, but exactly how I'm going to approach it, I don't make any decisions till I get there. So, you know, so for instance, when we were hunting uh, Nundle this year, we did the boundary road section, mm -hmm. if you will. So I drove in, um, pulled a car up and said, okay, and just got out and went, okay, what have we got? What's going on here? And went, okay, wind's telling me to go that way. And so, and I tend to, um, I tend to walk a lot. I don't, I'm not a good sit and observe hunter. Ooh. I'm a moving hunter. I, I, I'm, I try to do that mm. and I just, can't, <laughs> I just, I can't, I'm not really good at it. So I'm just not, so I, I, I move a lot. So I'm always kind of un, wanting to know what conditions are doing. And ultimately the direction I move is based on a pretty simple formula that I have where I start to build a picture of what's happening. So I go, so the first thing I do is, is, is I'll follow, is I'll, I'll respect the wind because if I don't, do, no matter what happens, if I don't do that, then I'm wasting my time. Yeah. And then I start looking for sign or, you know, I'm, I'm looking for sign. So when I start seeing sign, I start to understand what that sign tells me. So, and generally the first sign you'll see is print, you know, you'll see traffic. So we'll start to do that. And then I'll try and, and try and find more sign to reinforce that traffic. So I'm going to go, okay, you know, scat, things like that. Or sometimes, you know, you might see things like rubs or, you might see, you know, hair on a, in a, you know, on a on a wire and in a fence line or something like that. But I want to build this picture of what that area 
what animals are in that area and what they're doing as I'm walking along. So I'm, I'm processing that all the time as I go on. And generally I find that that, that works for me. You know, I'll, I'll just keep building and I'll look for things. And then I'll, you know, like for instance, um, the first day when I was out in Nundal and we saw those pigs, didn't get, didn't get a chance on them because it just didn't work out that way. But, you know, like, started to see signs started to see not just traffic signs but um signs of feeding so found you know diggings and stuff like that looked on these ones look fresh came to an area come to an area and it was a transition area so we'd been walking amongst the trees we came to a break in the trees is that that wonderful bracken that fern bracken you get it mm. nundle mm. looked down saw there was water and went and sure enough sat just looked down and then little pig's head stuck out of the ferns and there they were. So I just, I, that's it. But I always kind of start with the wind. Yeah. I think wind has just to be number one. That right. Then the rest <laughs> yeah. is just, you know, you're just going backwards. Mm. You just, you know, you know you're literally you're walking away from the game mm. or they're, you, they're fleeing from you. So are you using it. a wind puffer or are you, are you I just now all the hunting? Yeah, I got you wind. Do. All, all the time. Yeah. All yeah. the time. Yeah. So yeah. there's just, like, the things that I'm always using is the binos and the wind puffer. Yep, same. Yep. Always. And that's why and, – and it all now sits in a chessery. Same. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just yeah. – and, and, I, and, I, and I don't even mean like when I glass, I'm like not glass. I'm just literally picking up, looking, or I'll see something. What's that? Is it, you know, and I'll look at it and every – and I'll puff. And if it starts to tell me something, I'll go, okay, I've, I'm – I've got to think about altering course here. Mm. Yeah. Has the and, monocular thermal um, found a permanent home in the chest rig, or is uh, that a nice to have? But it's, it's a, not it's a, a nice to have. But I um, it's a bit big for a chest rig, isn't it? No, no. Well, I could I could put it in the radio. In mm. the, the the phone now sits in the radio pouch, which um, I've taken my GPS out. Mm. I used to have a Garmin GPS. Yeah, well, I, I, had, a, um, I, had, the I had a Garmin pouch, the Garmin Rhino pouch. Mm. And so I got the chest rig, I had a Garmin Rhino pouch, and I had a rangefinder pouch. New binos have got a rangefinder in them, so the rangefinder's gone, and the Zolio sits in the rangefinder pouch. And I'm now using my phone and the Avenza maps, especially on State Forest. So the rhino's out and the phone's in the same pouch and they fit perfectly. So that's it. So I'm, I'm down to that. So, um, yeah, so with the puffer and all that, then the puffer sits in a little tiny pouch side next pouch. to the yep. um, side pouch um, next to the bino uh, chest rig. So that's it. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, all the time, just constantly. Yeah, wind. It's important. There's most there's, important. People have asked me about it, and about and I think one of the things that every hunter could do is walk slower. <clears throat> mm. oh, yeah. And glassing and checking wind makes me walk slower. Yeah, yeah. Because I stop. I actually I find of, it, um, yeah. and th this is this is just purely observational. Animals, animals don't generally walk from A to B. 
You know, they don't kind of go, they go, eat a little bit, stop hand, do that. They don't usually kind of, they're not like humans. They're not like, you know, we look at a map and go, oh, I want to check out this dam. I'm going to move towards this dam. Animals don't do that. We do that. Mm-hmm. So animals stop, browse, smell. Yeah, that's, there, you know? that's true. That's because they're in their habitat and they know that's where right. they're going. So I want to actually, I want to sound more like an animal to an animal than a human. Because, you know, if you listen, if you're out with people and you listen, you hear them walking, you kind of go, that's people. Mm. You know, it's like, it's this rhythmic, it's it's people coming. You know, you've been out there and you hear other hunters coming, you go, there's people coming, you can hear them. We're rhythmic, you know, and we tend to, be repetitive whereas most animals you know you'll be in the scrub and you'll hear something but it's not like you don't hear this it's very rare you hear this deer kind of just doing this nice marching and it just kind of marches right but it does happen occasionally but it's not like if that you'll go oh hang on what's that and hear something and then it'll go quiet and maybe you'll hear it again you'll see it usually a rock or something like that just being dislodged Generally, I find that's it. They don't yeah. move like we do. They move mm. because they're eating and they're browsing and they're they're existing in that environment. So I'm I'm trying to sound more like that. So I tend to try and walk slower and break up my rhythm. Unless they get you mm. wind, and then they all go. <laughs> well, if they get you wind, yeah. and but I think also with animals too is that especially prey animals that um, well, sorry, all animals that we hunt. Um, I don't. I don't think they generally make a decision based on one input. No, no. Unless you're oh, really, oh, really silly. Oh, and for me, they the only time they will do that is on smell. Yeah, I even think that if they smell you, they'll go. Oh, there's something coming, and they'll move a little bit. Um, mm. you know that that kind of bursting out of the scrub busted that takes mm. you to do something stupid like almost like bump into one but you know i, don't know. I i've I don't seen know. i've seen them that they'll yeah. pick you up and they'll move a bit but they won't like uh, when once once me, tim and i were hunting yeah, for me it's species dependent like pigs they can be so stupid you can be right on top of them they can smell you they can sense you they can hear you and they'll they'll hang around goats, goats. And looking right at yeah. you, gutting yeah. out their friends. Yeah, still there. That's it. I mean, yeah. they don't, they don't, they don't. You know, they, no. they, 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 they kind of process. They go, okay, something's here, and they start processing. So, you know, you, you can, they can, they may smell you, but if you don't act like a, they might kind of go, oh, that, that tells me something, but it doesn't tell me to flee. Mm-hmm. They, they put mm-hmm. them on alert. Um, like for instance, when we were hunting pigs in the Pilliga once, the way we we came up with this idea was there was these lines of soaks and one guy would go in and walk on the soak and another guy would stay outside and see what would come out. And sure enough, on a couple of times, this pig came out. Now, that pig knew Tim was there, but it wasn't like sprinting off because it didn't have that high alert. It was going to, it went, okay, there's a human coming. I'll just kind of move off to off move out of the mm. way of this human. Well, that's what I find with pigs is that they don't bolt. They'll, they no, just, they'll just kind of move yeah. out of your way mm. and that's it. And uh, and, that's, and that's when I shot the thing because it was kind of, it was kind of looking back at him going, oh, there's something coming and it was mm. moving along the way. So they, I've got a, 
I got a piece of video that contradicts all of that with pigs, and there's always going to be an exception to the rule. But um, you know, we saw a mob of pigs in the paddock, uh, so uh, we stalked up on the pigs. Didn't want to shoot them because there were deer on the other side that we were actually chasing. Um, but um, I said to the guy that was with me, "Let's scoot around the other side. Like, let's just cruise around the other side and let them pick up our wind and see what they do." And I had the camera on them at the time, and they went from like three pigs together. They went from snouts down to bolt all at the same second. Mm. They just oof. There was no processing. There was no nothing. They're just gone. But um, they're likely to have been animals that are under pressure. pressure yeah, as that's well. right. They, I mean, it's like anywhere. I, I reckon every pig in every state forests, as soon as it hears brake slamming, becomes <laughs> Hussein Bolt of the pig. Because <laughs> <laughs> so usually yeah. uh, there's this big rap yeah. rap rap coming. Yeah, you know, that's true. That's mm. that noise equals big toothy thing chasing me. Whereas yeah. you know, uh, I think with you, if you're hunting uh, hunting on foot, they don't respond the same way mm. as they do that. And I mean, I've I've had that happen. You know, you'll be driving along and someone will go. I'll see in that game animal will hit the brakes and the animal will fl- go. Pew! If you drive on, you just keep driving, keep slow down. down. It'll, yeah. it'll look at you and kind of go, okay, yeah, I see, yeah, but I want to know what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. Next question I got, okay. and this will open a, a, a bigger conversation, but I want to try and limit it if I can, because we've talked about this before on other podcasts. I'm going to ask about rifle selection. Mm-hmm caliber selection mm-hmm. so we're big fans of adapting what you have to suit you know as, as as many species that you hunt you know you don't need to buy a you know an, another rifle just because you're chasing deer if you've got one but that's you got shouldn't that shouldn't stop deer. you <laughs> but that shouldn't stop you if you're allowed right, yeah, stop right. You. more is better more is better that's right. um but so so for the for the for the newer hunters, because we focus a lot of these podcasts at people that are trying to gather as much information as they can, uh, we're about to go and select a first rifle. This is not my favourite rifle or Jono's favourite rifle, but can you can you provide a, an all-round great calibre that is going to suit most state forests from goats, pigs to deer, knowing that you know our, our Queensland-based hunters probably going to be in the, the red fellow pig-goat range, you know, Sam, but not so much, maybe once a year, but not so much if they're going to be heading down to Nundle and things like that out of Brisbane. Um, how do you answer that? What's the, is there an appropriate caliber? Is it very much what your mate's got? Yeah. I think like everything, you know, you're going to get 1,000. If you ask a 1,000 people, you're going to get a 1,000 different responses. Sure. <laughs> um, so maybe the way to do this is just, answered how I, if someone asked me so if someone said to me i want to hunt state forest and i said do you want to hunt samba and they said no i'd say bye yeah, no. yep. don't say anything gonna, okay i'm just gonna write it down on the back of a piece of paper see if i get it right really <laughs> write it down. jesus yeah okay if someone said to me i want to hunt state forest and i said okay and i said just mainly state forest and they said yeah mainly state forest so there was someone who was going to, who didn't have access to land in Brisbane, in Queensland, wanted to hunt New South Wales. Okay, like like a lot of us. And I said, "Do you want?" I'd say, "Do you want to hunt Samba?" And they go, "Yeah, I probably won't hunt Samba." I'd say, "Buy three, I'll wait." Hmm. Okay. If they said, "I want to buy Samba," 
if they said I want to, sorry, you want to hunt samba, and I said you want to hunt samba, samba, or you you might go down. No, I think I'll, I'd say buy thirty oh six or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, what's the logic behind all that? Um, a grown up should be able to handle a three oh eight. Okay. Doesn't kick that hard. It doesn't kick that hard. You know, you should be able to handle a three oh eight or a thirty oh six. Um, if you're a teen or a young person, it's not a great place to start, but you could. It, it just it's up to the individual. But you know, there, there there is a there is other transitional calibers that you could consider, and maybe the seven mil weight is probably mm-hmm. a transitional. But if you were going to seven mil weight, I wouldn't go through weight. I'd just go to seven mil weight. Mm-hmm. So there is a potential there. So if you are concerned about the booting of a three oh weight, then the seven mil weight is probably there. So the logic behind that is is one is that if you lob up to a state forest and go, oh, I've left my ammo at home, if there is a town nearby and that town has any kind of gun store, you'll be able to buy three away. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. You'll be able to do that. They might say, oh, no, the, you know, my, the local produce down mine doesn't sell that. But most places will sell 308, but they probably don't sell 6.5 Creedmoor. Or if they do, there's probably one box, you know. So you, so ammo shouldn't be a problem in terms of that. In terms of what you're shooting, a a 308 will kill everything you're shooting at. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing about a 308 is it's going to handle, um, it's going to handle the scrub better than a two cal. Um, and this is experience hunting with a mate who's a very, very good shot and used to shoot 243. After a few state forests, he'd left the 243 behind and he moved up caliber simply because you know he was in that heavy scrub and stuff like that. You do need something that's a bit kind of more sledgehammery like than you know, than than the high performance needle. You need something that kind mm. of can. Do the work. Um, so yeah, to me, a three hundred eight. A couple of other reasons. Every manufacturer makes a three hundred eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't, have to, say, you don't, you don't have to go. Oh, look, I have to buy this. No, you'll you'll find the three hundred eight that you like mm-hmm. and that fits you. Left hand, yeah. right hand, mm-hmm. fit, quality, cost. It's there. You'll find it. So you'll have no problem. And the range of ammo available for 308s runs from very, very cheap um, soft point to very, very expensive, very high quality um, premium rounds. And you'll find something in that range and it will be readily available and you'll be able to buy it in, 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 in bulk and you'll be able to stick with that ammo or that brand of ammo and you'll find the brand that works for that rifle and you'll be able to tune it to yourself. Now, again, if you're going to reload, then that's different. But I'm talking about someone who's asking me to start with. Yeah. So, so, so with that, um, I'm going to State Forest. I'm going to buy a 308. I've got fellow, maybe reds. I've got goats and I've got pigs. What size round am I looking for? And average show safari style. You know what? What round am I buying? What 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 grain weight? What brands? You know, are there some? I mean, we're we may not be able to throw too many brands out there, but um, you know, there's some dodgy rounds out there. Mm. They're very inconsistent. There's some premium quality rounds that we all love to use. 
Um, but where, where are we starting? For me, John? yeah, for me, um, <clears throat> three, if we're talking 308, probably I'd start at a 150 grain. Is probably where I'm going to go. It's in the middle. It's not too heavy. Um, it's not going to kick as hard. It's pretty flat shooting. You can buy them anywhere. Um, as Mark said, availability of round. Um, you could go to 180 grain. 308 handles a 180 grain. If you're going for those larger, you know, if you're looking at reds, potentially samba, you might want to go 180 grain, something a bit punchier. Personally, I like to go in the middle. I shoot a 165 or a 168. I find in my 308, I get super good grouping, especially with the soccer rounds. For me, I've got a Tika rifle, absolutely loves those soccer rounds. Um, but I like that 168. It's a good compromise between a flat shooting caliber um, and that punch that I can really, I can take down reds, I've taken down pigs, goats, um, I've shot foxes with it, I've shot everything with it. For me, it's a sweet spot. Um, but for average Joe, I would say 150 grain in a 308, you can't go wrong. Yep. For me, it kind of start, it starts and finishes at 150. Mm. Um, simply because again, if I was talking to someone different size, you know, when you change grain, you change ballistics. So find a, a good 150 that you like, and that might be, um, you know, it might be a, 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 a quality soft point. It might be something a little bit, it might be one of the polymer tip mm. ones, you know, find a good 150 that you like and there's there's a myriad of them out there um um and just find find the brand that seems just i i don't know why but certainly rifles and brands you've got to find the right yeah, mix absolutely and you can Definitely. talk to people and it just it, it's different mm. you know like there's brands that i won't use anymore mm they just don't seem to want to work with a rifle and there's other brands that that's all they want to do. They want to work really well. So find there's a bit of an explorer, you know, exploration yeah, there, find the round that you like. That's key, Mark. You said try, um, you've got to try different rounds. That's it. You've got to, you've got to experiment yeah. a bit this, and then, then you find the projectile you yeah. like. Cause the thing is, if you buy a, a reasonable quality projectile, that'll kill a red, it'll kill a fellow, mm -hmm. it'll kill a pig, yeah. it'll kill a goat. Now, if you are, you know, shooting because you're going to sell the meat and you wanted to, you know, get every, you know, save every morsel, you're going to be getting it, you know, two, two, three, and you're going to be head shooting them off off a rest at night under lights. That's not what we're doing here. We're talking about you're you're going to go into a forest and you're going to go see all completely different situations and conditions, and your shot profile is going to be generally a bit closer. And it's going to be generally, uh, unless you unless you really really plan for it, it's going to be pretty quick, and it's going to you know you're going to have to get to it, and you need to be confident in what you got. Mm. So you, and the confidence comes from your gear. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, if you if you set it up right, you can shoot prone, you can wait for the game to apply for. But for most people, when they're shooting state forest, it's opportunistic. Mm. Yeah. You know, okay. Okay. Let's... We're on. Let's go. With that in mind, what what uh, scope setup you're looking for for this 308 with 150 grain rounds? Once upon a time, I would have gone from to from in the one to five range, um, but I've because with scope development the way it is, I'm a really big f fan of the two mm. to ten. Yeah. Yep. 
because it allows me to go down two or three, <laughs> but allows me to wind yeah. as well. So if there if there is that thing, you know, like I'm hunting somewhere like Nundle, and you you get to those places where you can see a few hundred yards, and you go, oh, there it is. I've got the ability to wind up, get prone, get set, take a nice shot. But then again, if I'm in Nundle, I'm going down a, I'm in a in a gully, and you know everything's at forty yards. I'm down at two power, and sure. and there it is. So what's your upper? What's your upper minimum zoom? Walking around, I, I if mate said to me once, I have to, I, I'll have to adjust that scope, or it'll become fixed. <laughs> I generally sit somewhere between mm. two and three. He said, "You yeah. better turn yeah. that, or it won't move." You know, but they yep. sit between so two and three yeah. because you know I can see, and then if I need to wind, I can wind, but. To me, I want I want big eye relief. Target, I want to see my target. I want to get good eye relief, and that's another reason why I've gone to uh, illuminate illuminate reticles. So most of mine are a th- a four to twelve or a three to fifteen, somewhere around that. I find I sit on the mm. lower end, usually around the three to five is where I'll sit most of the time. I might crank that up to eight if I've got a longer shot, but. I've never certainly mm. been to 15 power. I don't know why you would. Um, I just never. <clears throat> the, only time I go to 10 powers at, the only time I go to 10 yeah, powers when at I'm the range. Yeah, I zero at the higher range. Yeah, at, yeah the, at, at the top magnification, I'll always zero at and then bring it back is what yeah. I do. Um, but yeah, yeah usually yeah. sitting that, that three to five range, up to eight maybe. That's for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay, good. So we want we want the low... The low I, power I want, is super I want, important. I want, and again, that's. I mean, so if you're, you know, if you're in a, if you're shooting on private property and you're shooting on a paddock and you've got there they are and they're at a couple hundred yards, it's completely different. I understand that you you want something more akin to a target type of rifle. State forest hunting generally isn't mm. that. No, can be in in tiny instant. You know, once a once a time, but I mean. I'm trying to think where I've, I've very rarely have experienced that in the state forest where I've gone, oh, look, I can, you know, like do a, a, a long, sh- I know you did one at Nundal and I mean, you know, you've got it on video and I think that's fantastic because that, for most people, that's not a, that's not a common thing for someone like that. Well, for, yeah. I mean, John, I, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah, goats, they're, they're there. Yeah. I mean, for you me, know. I would say quality of optic above magnification. That for me, oh, yeah. I'd rather go for a top top yeah. piece of glass. Yeah, yeah. really, really, you'd oh, rather yeah. have oh, yeah. a high oh, yeah. quality eight power than a medium quality yep. two power. I'll, I'll probably I'd, swatch, switch that around. Switch that the around. other way. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd rather have I'd rather have less power mm. and more quality. No, no, I get that. No, no, but Jono's statement mm. is he'd rather have a high quality scope than a low power option. Um. Okay, maybe I didn't phrase that. I'd rather have a good quality scope than you know high quality glass than a than a, a cheaper you know something with a, a lower or better magnification. So if I had a two to a two to five by by thirty, I'd rather have that over than a three to fifteen, um, depending on the quality of the glass. Oh sure. For me, that quality. Yeah. You'd rather have a better quality Correct. than more range. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. Right. Yeah. For me, you know, I'll never forget. And this is going back to my UK days. I was sat in a high seat. Um, and I had a pair of Swarovski binoculars, and there's 20 deer in the field in front of me. I picked up the scope, and I had a lesser quality rifle scope, and I could not could not see the deer in front of me. 
but I can see them through my good glass. Doesn't that? That's so yeah. frustrating. I've said to more than one person that your binos need to be same quality, uh, uh, lesser quality yeah. than yeah. your yeah. than yeah. your scope. Well, you don't want yeah. to be able to see what you can't shoot. That so I would, yeah, I'd take a quality yeah. scope yeah. over magnification any day because if you can't see it, there's no and, point in having a 15 I, to 25 power. What's the point? Sure. And, and I actually think that's become more important because doing the the amount of rifle reviews I do, it's becoming less and less common that you get a rifle that's kind of ordinary. Mm. Rifles themselves are getting better. They say the baseline of a rifle is 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 improving all the time. So your rifles from out of the box are becoming more and more accurate. Okay, well, that seems, or they're just better quality builds, whatever it is, but they're they're becoming more accurate. Um, ammunition seems to be getting better, so you you mm, don't get. Yeah. I mean, actually, there was one I did get one really bad brand recently, which I told them about, but generally, um, you know, ammo is is good. It's it produces what it produces. You know, it's it's it produces results that you can replicate in most situations. So your rifle's pretty good out of the box. Your ammo that you're going to use is pretty good out of the box. So it gives you, it, it, the really question comes down is to the quality of your glass. Good quality yep. glass is just. I can't, I, I, just, there's no debate in that. I've no. used bad quality glass. I've now got great quality glass. Uh, I've got some electronic scopes that, sacrifice some of mm. the clarity for focal plane additional focal plane for all of the led lights and things that blink away in your in your in your scope um yeah mm. qualities good glass it's really no one's going to debate that right, so yeah. we'll leave that one as it is and one, to one me hand. when you're looking through that glass you want a reticle that focuses your eye on the target not focuses yeah. your eye on the reticle. all these fancy things all that. and so yeah. i like i like Same. a simple hunt and i understand that you know target reticles and things like that are, mm. they're, they're designed for a specific purpose i want a reticle that the duplex style for me is the best that's i love it plain old duplex yeah 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 um darcy's um, still got one of the original trigicons which yeah. is just the post with the illuminated yeah. arrowhead, mm -hmm. just yeah. illuminated arrowhead on a post, and you just kind of pick it up and go, okay, sure. <laughs> Look, That's good. Um, it's staying fantastic. Staying on rifles, what, what, what are, what are your um, almost mandatory, but what, what are your go-to options now on the rifle? I'm thinking slings and bipods and those sorts of okay. things. Still with state forest hunting in mind. Um, my my two cents on that before you guys start because I know your answers are going to be different. I I am slingless now. I've been through various different types of slings. I now just like to carry the rifle. I don't bother with the sling, or it goes on my pack. The rifle because I'm walking or I'm you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot more filming, so spot and stalk is less what I do. Um, but I've used safari slings and I've used various different other ones, and I just find at that moment where you need it the most when you're carrying your pack and your bino rig and your camera kit, that sling just catches shit. <laughs> and it takes away that 1% chance of you knocking that deer over. Um, so I've, I've got rid of it. But I know you guys mm -hmm. use slings, um, but I'm interested in the other bits and pieces you chuck on your rifles as well that you think are um, 
well worth considering for State Forest? Me personally, um, I use a sling. I like a sling. I like to have the rifle on my shoulder. Um, I haven't used it. Well, I don't own a safari sling. I use the one in the territory that you had on the BRX, and that was I want to get one. I think that's great. I think that will change mm-hmm. the way that I hunt. But I like to have a sling. Um, I always I don't like to carry. I used to have a bar pod fitted to my rifle at all times, one of the old Harris bar pods. Um, I don't anymore. I find it just adds extra weight, gets in the way, and it's not really. I haven't shot much. I don't think I've shot anything off a bar pod in this, in Australia. No, I should have read off a bar pod, but I do have. I carry the um, the Spartan bar pod that I've got on my my chest rig. So if I need it, I can just click it on and use it. Um, but otherwise, I try to be as streamlined as possible. Try and you know save as much weight. I do either carry a spare mag with with rounds in it in my pocket, or I'll have extra rounds on a buttstock. I like, especially when I'm hunting goats and things like that, or pigs. I like to have extra rounds because if you've got three or four in a magazine, they can be chewed up very quickly. So I tend to have an extra mag or extra rounds on me. I think that's pretty important um, in the state forest if you come in on, especially if you're expecting goats, because if you get in a mob of goats, you want to be dropping them. Um, but otherwise, I try to be as streamlined as possible. I don't want extra weight. I don't want things in the way. I usually do carry a pair of a set of shooting sticks. Um, I use them for, you know, if I'm going up a hill for, you know, support like a climbing stick. I use them to rest my binos on when I'm doing glassing, um, and I shoot off them. I've shot more animals off a set of shooting sticks than I have off a bar pod or resting off a tree just because I like a stable rest, and I can get them up pretty quickly. So that's me personally. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. So I, I generally carry my rifle on my hand, um, and I have a sling, a, a simple shoulder mm. sling, and I've made a little little setup for my backpack where I can kind of, it just kind of clips it onto my backpack strap. Doesn't clip it on, just kind of guides it in place. But that's simply yeah. because you know I've often got things like a camera and stuff like that, and it just makes it you know it's. It's just an easier way to carry it because I've got I'm, I'm doing other things. But as as people have hunted me tell me, I for years I just literally used to carry it in my hand, and that was because I went through every conceivable sling pattern there was. You know, safari slings, Rhodesian slings, this that blah blah. You know, NATO rated. I just they all just annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> so I just I. The only reason I have a sling is when I'm actually moving and walking and I'm, I'm not in a hunting position at all um, or I'm doing something, I put it on my shoulder and I put it in place there. But generally, I don't carry it in the sling. I, I, I literally carry it under the – slightly in front of the magazine well or something like that in my, mm. in my paw. I carry it that way. Yep. Have yep. have for years. What about um, spare rounds, Mark? Uh, so if, if I'm taking Indy, that's got 10 in the – Ten in the box. That's enough for me. Um, if I'm taking the older style Tika, I'll have. I'll use the. It'll either generally I'll put the three in the in the rifle, and carry the five in my mm. pocket. Um, I like to have my magazines in my pocket because nothing annoys me Cheating. more than people walking with ammo yeah. going clink mm. clink 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 makes me want to throw them off cliffs and stuff. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. that's it. So I have it in there, and so yeah. And in terms of uh, bipods, I've also probably owned every bipod that's available, and I've either given them away or sold them. Um, I just can't get 
I just can't mm. get in them. I just yeah, I've got just can't get in them. I got Primo shooting sticks in the shed. I gave Darcy a set of shooting sticks. Uh, I gave him a bipod. I got a tripod. Just can't get in them. Just yeah. cannot do it. Um, I can't do shooting sticks. I've, I just I've can't get. I just can't mm. do it. I just not, like when it happens. When it's, I don't mm. think about them. That's what it is, and that's what I found. Like I'll, you know, I literally once I had the primos and and we spotted some deer, and I and I shot this deer, and then I realised I dropped the sticks. Mm. I went. There's deer, and I got behind a tree and got in a position, and boom, hit this deer. And I went, Oh, got him. And yeah, we got him. He didn't even know we we're there. Perfect. And I went, Oh, there's the sticks back there. I just let him go. I just, mm. And my, that, that told me that my brain does not think go mm. to the sticks. And I've shot off sticks where you've had to shoot off sticks mm. in the UK, and it's and it was really, 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 Tough really you know, difficult for me to different. do. I mean, I've got it, it's just it's got, it, I think. You know, you it's how you train. You know, you they say you fight. You know, fight. You fight how you train, type thing. Mm. And um, I think if you don't shoot off sticks a lot, then it's hard to shoot off sticks. If you don't shoot off bipods, so if you're so conversely, if you're a guy who's shooting off bipods all the time, you probably think, how can mm. you not shoot off bipods? Yeah, and that's my my thing. I've I've tried to change my style of hunting. You know, we're lucky enough to have shot quite a few animals out of state forest now and you can be a bit more selective um you know if i was still chasing my first you know one two three to ten you know it's it's you know you just every opportunity you get you you're into it um so and and probably more because with camera carrying camera equipment yeah. around i shoulder like my my rifle is on my pack most of the time um and the opportunities that i get to shoot I, I lose a lot of opportunities. I, wa- I watch deer moving away because I don't have the time to stop and grab the rifle off the pack. Mm. That's just my choice of, of hunting. I don't shoot stuff on the run typically anyway. Um, and if I can find a prone position, then that's my go-to. So the same as what you're talking about, John, I've got the Spartan um, adapter that's mm-hmm. on the rifle. I've got the same adapter on three or four of the rifles that I use. And I've got one set of bi- uh, bipod that sits up underneath that mm-hmm. Spartan bipod. And Don't I think they're brilliant. It fits perfectly underneath. I, I use the um, the Bush Edge twin needle bino harness. It's got that Molly mm-hmm. um, webbing underneath it. So it just slides in underneath perfectly. And it's just there. I can just slide it out, pop it on, and I'm ready to go. So it doesn't really delay me. Um, I was just thinking about the last four or five deer I've shot. They've all been prone. Um, it's my favourite, and that's me trying to slow myself mm. down, because I've, you know, I've I've um, put myself in a situation a couple of times where it was too rushed, and whilst I still got the animal, it wasn't perfect, and I, you know, you try and tighten those things up after after mm. a while. So anyway, that's that's my go-to. Definitely like mm. the bipod. Well, seems you're carrying the adapters around <clears> for fun. Yeah, well, I've got so on <laughs> my I've got the Primos trigger sticks, um, but I've actually got the Spartan head that fits onto them so i use the same adapter yep. across my rifles then that fits the bipod or onto my trigger sticks so it's the same mechanism with the magnet i think it's great i love it <clears throat> i think it's great as a kid and i've actually mm-hmm. if i think about the last five deer that i've shot they've all been shot off sticks off those pretty much trigger sticks so just it works for me i think the last last animal i shot prime was that goat in february 
That's on prime. video. That was a, that's the last mm. animal I shot prime. And because again, it was it just the situation, you know, allowed, allowed itself for that. The goat was coming down, and we'd been watching it for half an hour. Mm. It was slowly getting closer and closer, and I literally crawled out past Joey and Gemma. Just crawled out, got prone, mm. bang, shot it prone. And that, yeah, and I hadn't done. I mean, I used to shoot prone competition, so I'm mm. comfortable shooting prone. It's just that I don't usually find myself in that position. Do you, do you find also that if you're if you're if you've set your rifle up for for shooting offhand, you're probably not well set up for prone. Uh, it depends how you shoot prone. I think um, uh, when I used to shoot competition prone, there was two schools of thought. There was the military school, which is you got really low, and you tended to be straight on behind mm. the rifle. Yeah, and that was because there'd be people shooting at you, so you know, and that's what they used to say. You know, get your ass down, and you, you, you know, you, you're shooting at you, you get low. You say the guys who are ex-military used to shoot prone in that very low prone position. The guys who used to who were purely target shooters in prone tended to be on mm. the angle from Just the rifle, so you know yep. they're a bit king, and yep. you tended to be up on your yep. shoulders, like arms up right. arms, up on your elbows, and up like that, and your head was up higher. And so it was kind of almost mimicking if you were standing up, if you know what I mean. It's not mm. exactly obviously, but it was so that didn't seem, that doesn't seem to affect the position as much. I think what it is, if you're shooting like true military prone, then yeah, it's different because, you know, you're trying to be as low as possible. You're trying to make this perfect straight yeah, line between, between, you, you know, well. between your feet yeah. and the barrel. It's supposed to be like, you know, dead straight line type thing. Whereas, you know, whilst I'm prone, I'm I'm quite raised up, so it, I did I didn't find it had any real um, issue on that as well. Yeah. Um, looking at time, I got uh, one more question I'll throw at you, and I don't know if you guys have got any more, but um, something in your state forest pack kit gear selection that you're going to walk away from the truck with that is a bit unusual. I guess something that most may not have thought about carrying or just something a bit different that you've found that you've decided to put in your pack because it's helping anything, anything on that level other than the 15th <laughs> knife that you carry, Mark. Not 15. <laughs> it's two or three, three, it's two, three, Eight. three, three. If you can't pack a knife. Um, what about your boot knife? <laughs> no, I don't care about it. Jono, you got anything for Mark's thinking? What's different? I carry something, something a bit unique. Oh, I wouldn't say it's unique, but I carry, um, I always carry plastic bags and rubber gloves. So if I'm going to shoot an animal, if I'm going to pack it out, I like to. I, when I did my, my training in the UK for meat handling, you always wear rubber gloves when you're when you when you're going an animal. I always have a couple sets of gloves and then I've always got plastic bags. So um, I, I just get <clears throat> quite thick. You don't want fragranced or anything like that. I've seen people rock up with fragranced no. um, bin bags. Um, you got to butt. Once it's dead, it's dead. You're not screwing it away anymore. <laughs> but also but, there's so good whatever. chemicals. <laughs> well, but you want yeah, it to smell. I mean, you don't want lavender flat tasting meat. So... Um, yeah, well, well yeah. maybe you do. But for me, what I wouldn't say it's unique, but I always have a piece of string, like a, a not thick rope, but a strong piece of 
thinnish rope to hang something from a tree. Um, like a paracord. paracord. That's, I always have a yeah. section of paracord so that if I can, if I have a tree available, I'll string up a deer or a goat. We did that recently on that trip to Mobile. We, um, we shot goats that the last morning when <clears throat> you guys stayed back at camp, we shot a goat each and we strung it up in the tree and which is so much easier to work than doing it on the ground. Yeah. We did the same. We did the same. I have a uh, paracord wrapped around mm. my knife sheath and a, um, you know, a nice, some sort of knot that I mm. learned to tie. Um, and it gives me enough to be able to mm. string an animal up and yeah. paracord's good. You can, you can hoist up a reasonable size fellow buck for paracord. It's not going to break. The one, the one thing I, I always have in my pack is cable ties. Cause you never know when you need to yep. put something back together, hold something up, tie it up. I always have cable ties in my pack. In my pack. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> one to have. Just on the rubber gloves, point to note, um, yes, you work behind a desk and it's not because you like your nice, white, soft hands. It's to keep the uh, gut juice mm -hmm. off the meat, right? The reason for rubber gloves is to separate the contamination yep. rather than yep. keep your hands clean. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Mm. I carry That's all of that. I, I, my rubber gloves are, uh, are, are slightly heavier ones are those yep. black the heavy duty ones the, yeah they're not the black surgeon ones because i just it's find ripped. that i just you know literally got their bursting fingers sticking out and all that stuff so it's so they're they're a bit more robust um but cord uh, a couple of like i basically in my pack i have a little meat processing that's got game bags um in it I'm just trying to think about. Look, for for many years and still today, I generally carry a compass with me, <clears throat> and that's simply because I learnt how to navigate with a compass. So what I tend to do is when I start, I'll just kind of look at the compass. And go, okay, I'm just kind of heading in a northerly direction. I just do that all the time. Don't do it so much now because I've got the Avenza and the GPS and stuff like that. But I'll, but I still often have the compass in the pack with me. Um, but probably, and I mean, I, I think I've I've mentioned it before. There's two things that that are in my the front pocket of my pack. One is a small, a very small um, tarp. It's actually the ground sheet from one of those, um, you know, those uh, hammocks. The Oh, yeah. Hennessy hammock. Hennessy. Hennessy? It's the yeah. ground sheet for a Hennessy hammock, and I, and it's it's multi-purpose. One is if I'm processing meat and I I can't find a really nice place to process the meat, I can put I can always put it on this tarp. Mm. If it's raining, I can put it over my head. Just make sure you wash it, or you know the blood from the turn comes on top of you. But the, the video when I was stuck up in the scrub at the, on the raw, I was underneath that tarp. Um, and it tends to keep your, my head dry, but all my gear dry. So that's mm. it. And the other thing in my pack that I use more and more is that little Cedar Summit self-inflating ass protector. Mm. Cushion. A little cushion. Yeah. So when we were at Nundal this year in... Um, in you know in the cold in uh in uh, july it it was very very useful then because it just kept your ass off the ground on the first night or first afternoon my son sat on it because he was freezing cold the poor bugger so so i stuck him underneath that um 
you know, stuck in on anything that did you know, did work for him. But there was one one evening we sat on a bit of open ground and watched it right through till dark, and I sat on it. And um, it, yeah, it's it's pretty useful. Mm. I actually think they're usually hand, they're pretty handy thing, and it's it's literally you know compresses down to nothing, and it just gives you a little a seating pad. Yeah, that's probably the only thing that's on my um that's out odd because I, after a while you tend to I find that I've, I've over time mm, I've stripped fine. gear rather than mm. pick up gear. I tend to yeah. strip. Oh, for strip, sure. What about strip. yourself? Yeah, you seem to add or take away. Um, I, I agree with the insulated seat. Seat. If you if you're going to do uh, like a lot of the new guys that come in, we we sort of show them how to find habitat. Um, you know uh, what um, tiers or shelves look like coming up off a creek. Um, where to sort of um, sit and ambush things like that, just to give them the best possible chance to to see deer. And if they manage to take one, then that's great. Um, adopting that sort of style, you've got to be comfortable especially if you're hunting in the winter. You can't mm. rock in to a cold gully, sit on the, the, the damp ground and expect mm. to be comfortable and warm and sit there for an hour and a half as the sun either fades or, or rises. You can't do it. So you've got to be comfortable. So um, the, the seat pad is a, is, a, is a really good option. If you are walking into a sit a sit and hide, then one of those little um, you know um, ultra-portable, ultra-light fold-up chairs is not a bad option. You, know, mm. you get them from... Aldi yep. or Anaconda, they're about that mm. big. Yep. And they all just together and put the seat over it. Just gets your bum up off the ground, get I've your got, bum off oh, the leeches, um, things like that. So that's pretty good. Carry, so carry salt. Something, something no leeches in July. There's no leeches in July. Ooh, they're sure. all gone. They're all gone. Um, yes, the little, the little salt um, <laughs> canister is super important if you're doing that. Um, but the other thing that I've, that I've adopted and I use – quite a lot now uh still with that sit and wait strategy is that pair of six mm. tiers um, there's always a pair of six tiers in the pack because if you're gonna if you're gonna find a spot that overlooks a scrape that overlooks some water that's got some good game trails coming in and out um you want to be able to come in and out of that area without touching leaves and sticks all the time so you want to you know your first day and you want to chop that stuff away because every time you touch that you're, you're giving the deer something to sniff and leave and they'll probably just bounce across to the other side of the ridge and you won't see them again for a couple of days. So you've got to get that stuff out of the way. I've got places that I go back to now that I chopped out three years ago and I might give it a tidy up um, each year that I go back to it, but I've cut a trail in so I don't mm. have to keep touching things. And I think that's really important. Keeps you quiet as well. Mm. Um, helps with the dog if you've got to go through Blackberry because mm. uh, she doesn't like Blackberry very much. Um, so you can cut her in and out of you know various different spots. So that's probably the the weird and wonderful thing that I would carry that most people don't. Mm. Mm. No. Um, Cicatees is a great idea, and uh, they double as good, um, you know, good for yeah, splitters and things like that. And carry a reciprocated saw. Carry an 18-volt battery. and All right. Well, I think that's probably given... Anyone who's chasing new ideas for state forest hunting, mm. a really good uh, overview of what, what we take, how we plan it, the wind, the gear. I think that's yeah, a good so. session. Awesome. Well, thanks, gents. Very cool. Good. Okay, buddy. Good night. Thank you. See you again. <laughs>